gender inequity has many, many different reasons, but one of them, as you say, is unconscious bias. It is really, really hard to de-bias minds. It might be easier to de-bias how we do things. Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. Our guest today is Harvard Kennedy School professor Iris Bonnet, who's director of the Women in Public Policy program here at HKS and author of the forthcoming book, What Works? Gender Equality by Design. Professor, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So uh, the subtitle of your book, Gender Equality by Design, uh, by that I assume you mean behavioral design. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, no, exactly. That's what I mean. Behavioral design builds on insights from behavioral economics and psychology and argues that we can redesign how we live, work, and learn. And how did you come about researching this? What, why, what sparked your interest in it? I mean, a number of things came together. I mean, one was an insight from behavioral science that it is really, really hard to de-bias minds. And in fact, that it might be easier to de-bias how we do things. And so in the book, I look at, uh, for example, the evidence on diversity training, on leadership training, mentoring, sponsorship, these kinds of things, which either focus on fixing mindsets or on fixing the traditionally disadvantaged uh, group, in this case, it was women. Mm-hmm. So that was one motivation, just kind of understanding that changing mindsets is really hard. It's not impossible, but it's really, really hard. And there are low-hanging fruit in our organizations that we could change tomorrow, and we should. Now, this all goes back to the idea of a lot of our decisions being predicted, or at least uh, you know, driven by unconscious biases. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, in fact, that was a second motivator of the book, that Uh, Gender inequity has many, many different reasons, but one of them, as you say, is unconscious bias. And that uh, unconscious bias are the stereotypes that are in your head, in my head, in everyone's head. Mm -hmm. And often we act on them or decide based on them without our conscious knowledge. And when I say stereotype, what I mean with that is that seeing really is believing. Namely, if we don't see male kindergarten teachers, we don't naturally associate that job with men. And if we don't see female professors, we don't naturally associate that job with women. You mentioned the word debiasing before. I think the natural inclination to respond to this is to maybe set up a training or some mm-hmm. some way for uh, people to understand their biases and perhaps overcome them. Yeah. Um, is that possible? So sadly enough, uh, much research uh, in behavioral science suggests that Uh, not just debiasing in terms of gender or race or other stereotypes, but more generally trying to debias cognitive errors is really hard. Now, there are certainly things that we have learned over the years on how to do that better. And it's not just teaching and training, but it's also kind of capacity building of how to deal with these biases in the future when they when we encounter them again. Mm-hmm. But yes, that um, is a very important motivation for me to write the book because mindsets, again, are hard to change uh, and it's easy to change environments. So can you give an example of how, how you accomplish that? I mean, mm-hmm. how is it that if you can't change individuals' opinions yeah. or, or I, I, say, I should say unconscious biases, how do you develop an environment in which they're not as prevalent or not as impactful? Yeah. Let me start with an early example, which I think is a bit of a metaphor for the book also. In the 70s, the major orchestras in the United States realized that they had about 5% female musicians, and they wanted to change that. 
And one thing they did was to introduce curtains. And it turns out that these screens really matter, even though, I should add, the orchestra directors and the selection committees, certainly even at the time, uh, did not believe that they were biased. They mm. thought that that wouldn't change things much because clearly they, of all people, only listened to the music and cared about the music that mm. came uh, that was played in the orchestras and certainly did not care about what people looked like. Now, it turns out that the research shows that this increased the likelihood that women would advance to further rounds by about 50-50 percentage points, wow. which is huge and contributed to the fraction of women that we have now on the major or orchestras, these are the 10 biggest orchestras in the United States, being about 38% female. Wow, and so this was just the introduction of curtains during uh, auditions. auditions? That's exactly right. So they had um, the musicians audition behind curtains, and so therefore they couldn't see them. In fact, kind of in more elaborate versions, I heard they have people take off their shoes so that we definitely can't detect the gender <laughs> right? of, of people. But I think, you know, the curtain is, that's what I'm saying, it's a bit of a metaphor in that it kind of serves two purposes. One is um, to show how big this bias is, um, mm -hmm. even for well-meaning people who were sure they were only focusing on the quality of the music played. Um, and the second one, important for the message here, is, is a change in the environment. It mm -hmm. wasn't teaching people to be unbiased or be objective, but it was making it easier for their biased minds to get things right. So that seems like a pretty big impact for a relatively small change. How do you measure the impact and, I guess, determine whether a uh, change is worth, worth doing for an organization? Yeah. So typically what we do is we run an experiment. Uh, we can't always do that, but that's the ideal scenario where you run an experiment much along the lines of experiments or randomized controlled trials that have been run in the natural sciences to test whether a drug is working. So you have half your people randomly assigned to the treatment group and the other half to the control group, and then you give the treatment to that treatment group. It could be medicine, mm -hmm. could also be a new way of interviewing someone, a new way of doing performance appraisals a new way of designing a test, and then compare that intervention with the other group, which didn't get the treatment. And then that difference tells you whether something works. And in mm -hmm. fact, uh, that is an important part of the book, that the book does try to focus on what works and mm -hmm. what does not work. Is that something that, uh, are you encouraging organizations to do these kinds of tests or are there proven examples where uh, any organization can take on, uh, say, a new interview process or something yeah. like that? Both, yeah. both. So on the one hand, the book is very much based on evidence and talks about what we've learned to date. And we've learned a lot from really across the world. So one you know, uh, important study, for example, on the importance of role models was done in India by my colleague Rohini Pandey and collaborators trying to understand whether seeing female politicians actually had an impact on what people thought possible for themselves and their kids. Mm -hmm. And it turns out they've been following that experiment for about 20 years. This was a real experiment for about 20 years. And they found that uh, if you have been exposed to a female leader for at least eight years, it turns out in those um, 20 years, then parents start to believe that one of the core career aspirations of their daughter should be to become a politician. Hmm. 
But I should add to that, in fact, you know, it doesn't have to be a real person. In fact, at the Kennedy School, this is now not um, an experiment, but just an observation. At the Kennedy School, another colleague, Jenny Mansbridge, also a professor here, noticed now about 10 years ago that we had many, many portraits of male leaders on our walls and zero of female leaders. Hmm. And this is despite the fact that about 50% of our students are women. Mm -hmm. And clearly, we want to give these women the same kinds of opportunities and the kind, same kinds of role models mm -hmm. that their male colleagues have. We've started to change that and we have commissioned a number of portraits through the Women in Public Policy program and other places. For example, of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the mm -hmm. president of Liberia, also a graduate of the school, right. and many others. Um, but that, you know, that's what behavioral design means. We have to change the environment in which we live and we have to kind of start to realize where these biases are hidden. Mm -hmm. That sustained, you said it was eight years, the India yeah. um, experiment showed, um, that sustained exposure mm -hmm. to that kind of imagery. Is that something that can be, I mean, is that something that can be replicated in every organization mm -hmm. quite easily? Or? Yeah. You know, I think there's nothing magic in the eight years. What, uh, just to give a bit more specificity to the India experiment, that in fact was based on India introducing quotas uh, or reserved seats for uh, local governments and reserving a third of these village seats for women. And it turns out that if a village has been exposed to two female village heads now, uh, female leaders in those 20 years, that, that started to change what people thought was possible. Mm -hmm. You know, is it eight years? Is it twice in a row? Is it just... Um, just some number of years. I think that that is not generalizable. But I think you're, you know, you're asking a good question in that experiments have the huge advantage of what we call in academia, kind of having maximum internal validity. We can really control for everything and for alternative explanations and the mechanisms by which um, these factors might influence behaviors. But uh, external validity. Uh, is more questionable. We don't know exactly what we learned from India for the United States or for Mexico, for that matter. And so really what we have to do is run similar experiments in very different parts of the world and then learn from, from that research. It's a bottom-up approach, uh, which I'm a strong believer in because at least we know something um, with relative certainty even though in a relatively small environment, but then we can start to scale. So the the example you uh, used before of the orchestras, uh, that was a clear example where the orchestras themselves improved because they were get now getting the best mu quality musicians. Yeah. Um, to what degree does closing gender gaps uh, actually yield economic benefits? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the business case is a very important question and kind of in the broadest sense of the term. I mean, one, just economic returns. And there is both micro and macro evidence kind of suggesting that the business case is there, but probably not as big as we hoped or thought or some people made it out to be. Um, so I think one thing we need to understand is that gender equality or gender diversity is not just a numbers game. So just adding more women uh, to a team can 
um, be helpful, and I'll, I'll tell you about a study in just a second, can be helpful, but possibly equally as important is how the team functions, how these women were selected, and then how the team actually function, functions together. Mm-hmm. So let me give you kind of two kind of two interesting pieces of evidence. One is um, something that we just talked about today, in fact, in a faculty seminar, uh, a very nice study trying to examine collective intelligence. So can we measure the intelligence of a team, much like we can measure the intelligence of people? Mm-hmm. Um, and the researchers varied the fraction of men and women. They varied people's backgrounds, lots of different things, the kinds of tasks they were involved in. And they do find that gender-diverse teams outperform homogenous teams. Mm-hmm. And so that is kind of important to know. But, you know, on the other hand, there's evidence from Norway, for example, which increased uh, or which introduced, excuse me, which introduced them quotas between 2003 and 2006 for its corporate boards, uh, requiring them to have 40 percent women on their boards. And this was not an experiment, but, you know, close enough to an experiment to at least kind of compare what happened in Norway compared to surrounding countries at the same time. And the researchers did find that it did have short-term negative impacts on company performance. Mm -hmm. Why is that? It's hard to say. The the research doesn't really lend itself to kind of be very, very specific about the mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But there are a number of candidates which can contribute to that. Um, One of my favorite ones is just generally new teams don't perform tend to perform better than old teams, meaning if ever you are um, flying on a plane, you want to wish that the crew has been working together for some time. Uh, It turns out that most of the incidents, doesn't have to be a real accident, but most of the incidents uh, on airplanes happen with newly formed crews. Hmm. They don't know how to work together, and that just takes time. So in that sense, who knows what we'll find out about Norway. Um, and certainly Norway is very different. Again, you know, going back to your earlier question, to what happened in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, in India, it took some time. Um, it certainly is the longest running quota experiment that we have in the world. And it seems to be quite positive. Also in terms of the business case, these women leaders, for example, did provide more public goods, in particular clean water, public goods that women cared about, than their male counterparts, which you know speaks to the business case. But in Norway, you know, maybe in 10 years we'll be back here and, and, and we'll, have, we'll have a different outcome. So I think on the business case, and just to summarize, uh, it is there um, a meta-analysis looking at about 120 studies. Hard to believe that that many studies have been conducted on gender diversity in corporate boards. Mm-hmm. suggests kind of small positive impacts of um, increasing gender diversity. It seems like there's a big difference between, say, uh, designing something around a quota system. It seems kind of a, a hard policy choice uh, versus the putting in a screen in yes. the auditions or uh, even just putting photos on a wall. Yeah. Um, those speak to the the famous the nudges exactly. um, paper. Is one more effective than the other? Because I feel like mm. the nudges thing gives people. I don't know, there's, there seems to be some agency or, or choice involved there. Yeah, no, that's a very good question. I don't think I can say one is more effective than the other. It's very context-dependent. I mean, obviously, I belong to the nudge school, and my book is all about nudging. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, I do discuss uh, kind of the psychological impact of quotas as well, because we kind of have to understand the behavioral um, impact that these mechanisms have, too. There, you know, there is some evidence from other domains, not gender, trying to understand, for example, the impact of incentives compared to nudges. And it 
and you know honestly it depends a bit on the context but i think generally i um i agree with your assumption that nudging is very very different from um changing regulations or mm. changing incentives mm. uh in many ways we leave people's opportunity set identical and just change a bit how the environment is framed in mm. fact I should give you one other example which I think is one of the most powerful changes of the environments that also changes um really the landscape in in the United States quite dramatically the um uh, new SIT uh has been debiased this year for the first time in 2012 uh, the college board had a new president Dave Coleman and he and his team were determined to uh look take another really careful look at the SAT and uh standardized test uh, most important test in the United States um uh playing a really important role for um our students determining which college college they can go to um just taking a very good look of what we're measuring are we really measuring ability and what people know or are we measuring other things and one of the insights um that they came away with uh Uh, is that we might have the gender bias that test so some work of a former student of mine Katie Baldiga Kaufman has shown that women don't guess on the SAT but are more likely to skip a question hmm. so to give a bit more background the SAT has um some fraction of the SAT is a multiple choice question questionnaire and Uh, people who took the test could either volunteer an answer if they didn't know the true answer the right answer or they could just skip the question mm-hmm. and there's lots of evidence suggesting that women are more risk averse than men and less self-confident than men and if that is true then we would expect women to be less willing to guess because there was a small penalty associated with guessing wrongly And so if you're more risk averse, you won't be guessing, but you just skip and then you have you know you have zero for sure. Um but in the other case if you guess and you guess wrongly, you might have a deduction of a quarter point. Mm-hmm. Now, the new SAT starting this year 2016, I'm happy to say, is gender biased and levels the playing field in that it takes out the penalty completely from guessing wrongly. Which, oh. you know, was interesting because the college board could have done two things which in fact Katie um examined in her experiments it could have forced everyone to answer every question mm-hmm. which Katie found created lots of stress for people and the college board in the end didn't um choose to go down that route or it could have taken out all the penalties um and that's what they chose and of course at that point the criticism was well but now this used to be a test which is measuring ability and now you're inviting wild guessing mm-hmm. and the answer to that of course is we did invite wild guessing by only the people who were a bit more mm-hmm. willing to take risk that happens to be primarily or overwhelmingly men um and so now we are making it legal mm-hmm. and in fact invite everyone to mm-hmm. guess wow so when you were writing your book Uh who is your target audience? Who are you thinking about that might take these recommendations and and implement them? So primarily practitioners. I want people to be able to use the insights that are in the book. Mm-hmm. So somewhat unusual for me, um but also for for an academic, I am trying to end every chapter with three recommendations of interventions that have been tested in some context that then companies and organizations and departments and NGOs I mean really any organizations and schools 
could take and experiment with. Mm -hmm. But an important part of the book is that I am trying to be very clear that, you know, all of the book's recommendations are based on evidence. But as we discussed before, much of this evidence has been collected in one or two or three different schools or different organizations or different mm -hmm. universities in the world. And whether or not it's going to work for your organization uh, is really up for testing. And so I'm encouraging organizations to start experimenting. Can, can you give us uh, maybe one or two examples of those recommendations? Yeah. So one of the important takeaways uh, in terms of talent management is that we are doing an extremely bad job uh, when we interview people and try to predict future performance. In fact, uh, literally by now hundreds of studies have shown that unstructured interviews are very bad predictors of future performance. They're much loved, and when you talk to managers, everyone would think that, of course, they are particularly good at predicting whether someone fits and is actually a high performer in the future. It turns out that correlation is basically non-existent. So one of the studies that um, wasn't my own, but that illuminated this for me was a um, uh, almost an experiment, wasn't a real experiment, but almost an experiment in the state of Texas that a few years ago uh, the medical schools had chosen all their students and then late in the academic year the state of Texas realized they didn't have enough physicians. So they went back to the medical schools and asked them to add more of the applicants to their student pool and so mm -hmm. the universities had to go back to the applicant pool to the rejected people and add about a quarter more um, students. Mm. Of course, at that time, all the good ones had already been snatched up. And the good ones, I say that in quotation marks, I mean, all the ones that they thought um, could have been chosen had already been snatched up and they had to go back deep into the pool. In fact, um, the pool that this one university had to go, uh, had to look at were, people were rated ar uh, around number 800. Wow. And uh, so they chose 50 more students. They had already chosen 150. They chose 50 more students. And then some researchers examined how these 50 lowly ranked students who nobody wanted yeah. performed in medical school compared to the highly rated top 150 students who the university had actually chosen, the medical school had actually mm -hmm. chosen. And I mean, I wouldn't tell you this story, right? You know where I'm going. Um, <laughs> it turns out that uh, there's no difference. There is no oh. difference. They are just doing the same. And we're, they can improve the, predictabil the predictability of the rating slightly when they take out the unstructured interview. So these students are rated based on unstructured interviews and also on their grades and mm -hmm. some extracurricular um, experiences they've had and letters of recommendation. So kind of more quantitative, quantifiable measures. And mm -hmm. if you look at those exclusively, uh, then the predictors, uh, we do a bit better job. So this is all background, but you ask right. me, you know, what's my recommendation? Sure. It's a long way of kind of saying, um, so one recommendation is very simple, just do away with unstructured interviews. Mm -hmm. Totally do away with them if you must interview. So the best predictor of future performance is a work sample test. Right. have people perform a task that is very closely mm. related to the tasks that they need to perform in the future. Mm -hmm. If you need them to write speeches, have them write a speech. If you need them to um, analyze some data, have them analyze some data. Interesting. Um, so that's the best thing. But if you, if you must interview because, um, again, it almost is kind of a human bias to believe that that um, adds some interesting value. Yeah, that's, value. A, that's a big question. <laughs> uh, then do it, do, do it in a structured way. 
mm-hmm. and ask the same questions um, to all of your candidates in the same order. Um, rate the questions right mm-hmm. after you've asked the questions. And importantly, and that's based on some research that Max Bazerman, who is a colleague here and co-director of the Center for Public Leadership, mm-hmm. and Alexandra van Geen is a doctoral student and now an assistant professor um, in, Amst- uh, in Rotterdam, not Amsterdam, uh, the Erasmus University, and I did, um, use comparisons. So comparisons are a super power- powerful tool for us to calibrate our judgments. Anything that we do, whether or not you like the coffee that you're drinking, uh, or whether or not you're feeling hot or cold right now, mm-hmm. has something to do with, excuse me, with the coffees that you normally drink or the tempers that you, temperatures that you normally use too. So everything that you perceive or judge is relative compared to something else. And when we evaluate people, job candidates, and we go back to my starting example of the male kindergarten teacher just doesn't fit my natural comparison, which is female. So mm-hmm. the stereotype in my head is female. So what I want to do when I see him is I want to evaluate him compared to the norm. And he deviates from the norm. And therefore, um, I'm already going to start the interview being biased against him. So what we can show in our research is that when you give people another human being to compare with, they don't have to go back to the stereotype. So you help them make the comparison, something they naturally want to do, but you make it, they now can make it based on two real people. Interesting. Well, the book is What Works Gender Equality by Design. Harvard Kennedy School Professor Iris Bonet, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. Well, thanks so much for having me. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Lauren Colarusso at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter 